Welcome to the Resilient Biome Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Maurer, and the goal of this podcast is to learn as much as we can about the human microbiome so that our gut can be as healthy and resilient as possible. Today's episode is titled Vaccine Injury, First the Gut, Then the Brain. I stole that title from a paper written by our guest. The big idea is that vaccines have the potential to cause injury to the gut microbiome, and because of the gut-brain axis, in turn, the brain can be harmed, leading to various disease states. My guest today is Keith Bell. Keith is the founder of the 12,000-member Facebook group, the Gut Health Stool Discussion Group. It's a very active group that has personally been very beneficial for my own gut health journey. Keith is an activist for health and a citizen scientist. He brings a real passion to how he thinks and acts in the gut health space and beyond. Well, I'd like to welcome Keith Bell to the Resilient Biome Podcast. Keith, uh, this is the first time we're actually meeting, so uh, it's so great to meet you, and thanks for joining us. Well, good afternoon, Rich and everybody uh, from Palm Beach County, Florida, with love today. Fantastic. Well, we're sitting at about a, a beautiful 30 degrees in Wisconsin, so I'm guessing you're a little better than that. Uh, yes, I know you're you're in God's country in Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a beautiful area. Yeah, I'm. I was raised in in Chicago. Um, I'm so, sorry to hear that. Yeah, so I know what you're going through, and my heart goes out to you. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, you you've been into gut health for uh, a long time, and we both know that the whole topic is just growing exponentially, which is which is exciting and hard to stay on top of, et cetera. But um, you've been in it for so long, a couple of decades, I think. How did you first get started in this uh, on this topic and interest? Well, I've been into health for a long time, um, not not in particular gut health, uh, but in the 1980s, I was a, a UNICEF spokesperson as a volunteer in, in Chicago um, for the annual release of the State of the World's Children Report. Um, I was part of a of a lobbying anti-hunger group, um, and UNICEF allowed us to be spokespeople, and uh, so I was on the NPR affiliate for a few years in the 1980s, talking about child health and things like breastfeeding. And at that time, we were even promoting immunization. Um, that's a controversial area we'll be discussing. But uh, it wasn't until 2008 that I really started to look at gut health and the gut brain axis, um, because our, our family dog began having a seizure disorder at the age of four years old. Um, and it seemed to coincide very strongly with symptoms of the gut. For instance, I knew that if she were constipated one day, there would be like clockwork seizure activity the following day. So that's really what got me started. Eventually, I was able to control her seizures um, by working on her gut, not just her brain. So that that's you know, what really got me involved in in the the gut brain axis. However, I didn't know that much about microbes at the time. Um, that that took place, you know, in in the years following. Um, if I had a choice, a chance rather, to do it all over again with this dog, I would have strapped her up against her will and given her a fecal microbiota transplant. I mean, FMT is probably the biggest gun we have. I was recently talking to an FMT um, uh, doctor who's a, a vet, and um, she actually does something very interesting using 
Her, her name is Margot Roman. She is using ozone prior to FMT as opposed to antibiotics, which is a mainstay of people like uh, Dr. Adams in the field of autism and FMT. So I think that might be something that will catch on in humans, ozone therapy prior to FMT. That's that's pretty interesting. So um, uh, uh, a breathed in ozone? Uh, I'm not exact. No, I, I think it's directly applied to the colon. Oh, uh, interesting. She's doing bottom up FMT. And anyway, um, that's that's really where I got my start learning about the gut brain axis. And later it became known as the microbiota gut brain axis. So that's the thing that is not being factored and never has been by science and the medical establishment with regard to vaccine safety. So that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And uh, hats off to you, Rich, for for hosting this subject. It's, you know, we're going to ruffle some feathers, hopefully, here. And that's so that's that's fine. That's fine. You know, we, mm -hmm. we want we want to, uh, you know, and not pretending, of course, that uh, we know all the answers or have all the solutions. But uh, it, it sounds like it's going to be a, a interesting discussion. So appreciate you being here. Yeah, interesting backstory there. It seems like. Everyone, I want to ask you about the the gut club gut club group on Facebook in a moment. But it seems like everybody who is into this area of of gut health has a backstory, and usually it's a uh, this is my health story. So I love the fact that it was your dog, and you cared cared for him or her to oh, to do that. Rich, I have to. I should also say that the amount of stress that I went through, you know, and sleepless nights, you know, up on you know the internet. Um, was pretty large. Uh, and I can't imagine having a child, uh, let alone a dog, having this issue. So, you know, hopefully we're going to enlighten some people as to what I call the biological plausibility of a vaccine injury that might even induce something like autism or right. epilepsy. You know. And I'm stealing the title of this podcast is... Uh stolen from a paper you wrote in, I think it was 2015, you said, um, vaccine injury, first the gut, then the brain. So that is where we're going. But first of all, um, I first heard about you on the Gut Health Gurus podcast and that you had this Facebook group. And I, I said to myself, I've got to check this out. Uh, so if you could tell us uh, about that group, how many members are in there? Do you have any like favorite stories of it's an impact uh, that has happened as a result of it? Yeah. Um, the Gut Club Stool Test Discussion Group um, started in 2016. And right now we've got, I think, over 12,500 members and a few thousand are pretty active. I'm happy that you're one of the you know, most active and, and also creating some sensational videos, educating people in the group about HMOs, human milk oligosaccharides. And... Um, and more recently, bifidobacteria probiotics and 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 the infant microbiome. Um, so, in two th at the end of 2015, I started the the main Facebook page of the Gut Club, and uh, as well as thegutclub.org on the internet. So, you know, the, more than half the reason I started the group page was to learn from other people like yourself, mm. and uh, I do on a daily basis. Um, mm -hmm. There are a lot of smart people. There, people post their charts, um, their stool test charts, and as a hive mind, we interpret those results and learn from each other, 
and offer what I like to call impactful suggestions of support. Uh, oh, I love that impactful so, suggestions of yeah, support. Uh, yeah, that's exactly. that's that's the buzzword, and um, you know, it's about it's about generosity, and and uh, you know, it's not it's not a group that's highly moderated. People have a lot of freedom in the group, um, you know, short of uh, of personal attacks, of course, but um, but it's pretty active, and I'm just really honored that so many smart people. Um, scientists and doctors and people suffering have joined that group over the years. And um, it's, you know, there's no reason it shouldn't have a hundred thousand members at some point, but uh, right now it's, it's got over 12,000. It's pretty amazing. I'm guessing it will have over a hundred thousand. And I just like to say, I've benefited so much from that, that group that was, I found it early on in my sort of my, my journey and um, I would say most things I have learned or been inspired about probably came from from the the Facebook group. Uh, so and, and likewise, you know, I throw some content questions and some of my uh, testing and testing of friends. I've thrown that in there. But the people, especially some of those core people that reply again and again with such helpful information, of course, I don't want to. Uh, make it sound like go there and all your answers will be uh, all the solutions will be provided. But oftentimes that is the case. And that's, that's just fantastic. Yeah. There's a lot of generous uh, generosity in the group. Um, that's what it's all about. It's trying to help others and we all learn together. You know, yeah. this is, this is like inner outer space, Rich. I mean, the, especially the small intestine, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're examining fecal samples which might be suggestive of what's happening in the small intestine, uh, you know, especially that first section, the duodenum past the stomach, that's like maybe the most important part of the body because without balance there, we have nutrient deficiencies and, and so many issues. And then, you know, further down in the small intestine is where most of the immune system is. Um, you know, that's, that's in the ileum, the, the third section. So you know, we're, we're, we're flora shifting pioneers talking about what I call inner outer space. That's the idea. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I claim almost total ignorance on the small intestine. That's just an area I have not yet looked into uh, very much, but so that's, that's really helpful to, to hear how important it is. Do you, do you see a, a trajectory that way where that's now catching on? Whereas colonic health was, was the, the forerunner. Well, not until we see a lot more testing. I, I think a lot of the reporting, I, I've been talking about this in the group, um, is not taking into account the importance of lactobacillus. Um, you know, I, I know that you specialize a lot on, on bifidobacteria, but, you know, which I used to call the Rolls Royce of the microbiome and still do. You know, then I also like to refer to lactobacilli as the, the Lamborghinis of the microbiome. And and they need to be more dominant in the small intestine, but the stool test reporting based on a colonic floor, you know, a colonic sample, you know, might suggest reduced lactobacilli in the small intestine, and that's that's something that we're wrestling with now on the page. So, and and, and testing, how do you test? How do you get a sample? <clears throat> well, you know, there are, there are studies using biopsy samples. Mm. Uh, you know, that 
maybe there'll be some uh, like robotic testing. I mean, there are capsules that that might. I've I've got to look into the latest. Thanks for inspiring that um, research. I think there have been capsules that can do some detection work um, in the small intestine. I'm not sure where that is, but there are, are a number of really interesting therapies for the small intestine. Um, the you know that that are reversing diabetes, for instance. Mm. So. That's that's a subject unto itself, the small intestine. I'm sure we're going to get a lot of other podcast ideas <laughs> as, yeah. as we talk here. That's fascinating. Well, again, let's. I want to get into our main goal, uh, and it's again the title of your article: "Vaccine Injury: First the Gut, Then the Brain." And uh, we're going to be talking about vaccine injury and its possible impact on the brain, things such as autism. And, but, you know, and we've mentioned the word vaccine a few times already. There might be some listening that think, okay, you know, here's another sort of right wing, crazy anti-vax wants to talk at us. Uh, Do you, do you want to tackle that question right out of the gate? Okay. um, Well, I'm more about, you know, and the thrust of the gut club is more about learning and educating, you know, informing others about microbial regulation of the immune response. That's what natural immunity is. And that's what explains things like asymptomatic um, carriers, even applied to the pandemic and, and COVID-19. I mean, and it, it also can apply to vaccine injury because, you know, m- you know, most people who receive a vaccine would not necessarily have an adverse reaction. Um, but what we need to do is explain the subset of people that do have an adver- have an adverse reaction. So this is about how microbes basically run the show. I mean, they're, they're regulating our immune response to a pathogen like SARS-2 um, and a vaccine. But the problem is that the science hasn't gone there yet um, related to adverse vaccine reaction. They've written paper after paper. I mean, we've got a collection um, and several collections posted on the Gut Club main page uh, on Facebook. But they they haven't, you know, they, they've gone toward the idea that microbes regulate vaccine response and improve the response. It's about vaccine effectiveness and, and efficacy. But what has been completely neglected purposely, in my view, is any scientific research published about adverse reaction and how that's associated with microbes. Uh, you know, there, there are two ways to look at this, Rich. You have microbes present at the time of the vaccine regulating the immune response. Um, and, you and that also would be have the, immune response, yeah. whether or not you get a vaccine, but especially if you get a vaccine, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and you know, this would apply to say any virus as well. You have an, you have a microbial regulation of immune response to the virus, but what's easier, I think, for most people to grasp is how there's a shift in flora based on that immune response. What, 
What's not being factored, though, is what I like to call microbial predisposition. And that's the, the, the microbes present at the time of the vaccine, which leads me to promote the idea that we should be doing stool testing before choosing to vaccinate in order to assess the risk of an adverse reaction. That's the idea. I, I'd like to see the stool testing that you and I know so well in the group become a routine thing for mothers and, and infants. And I, you know, Tiny Health is a company that has been focusing on on that area. They're, I think they're heroic for making that their focus. They, they do some nice work. I would like to see them get more into phylum level analysis. Have you seen any of their reports yet uh, showing phylum level? Yeah, I, I saw I saw one report. I don't recall if there was a phylum level. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I one of my goals is to interview somebody from from Tiny Health on the podcast episode. So, yeah, yeah. I I heard your first um, podcast uh, recently, all about the infant microbiome and a a case report basically of an infant taking bifidobacteria. Um, this is with a, a a practitioner in Australia. That was really fascinating stuff. I think I, that that applies to my early thoughts in 2014, I was writing articles questioning whether or not a lack of bifidobacteria at the time of vaccination being associated with an adverse vaccine reaction and injury. And that still holds true today. That, that question, unfortunately, no scientist has gone there yet and published about that dynamic of vaccine injury due to reduced or even absent protective microbes like bifidobacteria. That's one of the reasons I love this discussion is uh, that case study. And I learned of another case study recently that, that are, is eerily similar that I, I might talk about at some point, but it's clear everyone accepts antibiotics. Uh, and in, in some cases, if, the, if it's the case, C-section has a dramatic impact on an infant's microbiome. But we, as you say, uh, no one's talking about vaccines. So you keep saying there is almost no research. Do, do you mean there's really no research or almost no research on this? There's zero research published zero for, any, research. For, for, right. any, for any childhood shot. There's, wow. there's, one, there's one paper out of China that finally associated adverse reaction to a vaccine, in this case, the mRNA COVID vaccines, with microbes. And in, in that case, they show that there were lowered adverse reactions based on two types of microbes, um, one of which was Prevotella. Um, so they're, they're going at it from the protective standpoint. Um, but no one has associated gut dysbiosis with adver adverse rex vaccine reaction in, in even a single piece of literature. And I've been, you know, going after scientists on uh, on our Twitter page now called X um, about this. You know, for instance, in Ireland, there are a group of microbiotic gut brain researchers at University Cork, um, um, UCC, University College Cork. They're the most prolific in, in the world about microbiotic gut brain axis. But even they 
you know, haven't published anything about vaccines. Mm. I mean, I've I approached their lead scientist, uh, John Cryan, just before the pandemic in January 2020 at a microbiome conference in Miami. And, um, you know, with the idea of interviewing him for the gut club. And I ha- happened to have had a press pass to the conference. Mm. And uh, he immediately said he knows nothing about vaccines and then uh, avoided me for the rest of the conference. So, oh, you know, but, but I, you know, I have to give him credit too, because he's, he and his group have, you know, outlined everything that we, that we need. I mean, if this were to be brought to a, a court of law, we could use that science that they've created and it, and they come out with papers on a, oh, you know, it's almost weekly. Um, I think I'm ex- exaggerating, but maybe not so much. I mean, the science is so prolific, and they've they've also looked, you know, and uh, and studied the issue of probiotics, um, naming some of them psychobiotics. Have you heard that term, psychobiotics? Yes, yes, you know, yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so the problem is they're they're avoiding this issue, um, and the the medical establishment is, I would say, guilty. Um, um, of claiming that there is no biological plausibility for vaccine-induced autism. You know, you have people like Peter Hotez and and Paul Offit. Paul Offit was once on video telling his associates, you know, his colleagues, that we can never, you know, say that there is biological plausibility. No no door can be left ajar. Mm-hmm. Um, but these people have what I call a sterile construct of health. Um, they're, you know, and unfortunately, there's no science published to, you know, to prove to them that what they've been saying to people is misleading and misdirecting, that there's no biological plausibility for this kind of injury. When we look at the microbiota gut brain axis research, there's so much that it's laughable if it weren't so painful. So we need to inspire scientists to to become brave enough such that they don't fear losing funding um, from the pharmaceutical industry so that they can finally let people know that, you know, there is biological plausibility for vaccine-induced injuries such as autism and epilepsy and 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 other problems, even gut skin access issues mm-hmm. like, like eczema. So you, go ahead, Rich. Yeah, no, I was, I was going to say, um, before we started recording, you had said, you're not really a scientist. You're more of an activist. Obviously you've had to learn science as a result. Uh, I'm, I would be the same way. I have a whopping bachelor's of science, but that doesn't qualify me to, to speak on these things. Uh, but with, even without much science, it is just, you talk about plausibility. It just seems to me common sense that a vaccine could, right? You're talking about plausibility. You're not talking about, uh, you know, one equals X every time. Um, so that that's uh, just shocking. Yeah. And to get back to your, your question about being an anti-vaxxer, no, it's more about giving people information so that they understand the risk involved of a vaccine based on microbial balance at the time of the vaccine, but also how a vaccine can shift flora based on the immune response. Um, 
and give people the tools to decide whether or not they want to vaccinate versus, uh, you know, just going on the side of what's now called natural immunity. I remember when it wasn't called natural immunity. Um, but I believe what defines natural immunity is microbial balance. And that's something that some people would say, we don't really know what microbial balance looks like. But I mean, what would you say, Rich, as, as a member of the Gut Club Stool Test Discussion Group? Do you think we know what microbial balance looks like? Not at all. That seems to be like uh, a question that's 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 raised a lot. What is and even in talking to uh, my first podcast guest, Don Witten, who works with, you know, really an infant microbiome specialist, you know, I appreciated her humility. She's like many times she just said, we just don't know. We want to be careful. And that's why she's very conservative in uh, as a practitioner. We just don't know. I mean, but we know enough to go in some certain directions and, and talk about things like this. Well, I, I bet to differ. And, and this is the, the rub here because, you know, even people in the field would say we don't know uh, what a healthy balance looks like. But based on my learning over the years, I think we do. No, what let, let, let me let me say uh okay maybe i overstated that okay. uh i i made that sound too agnostic like we have no idea um no i i totally agree otherwise i wouldn't be you know putting out content on you need this much bifidobacteria and this much f presidency etc so so i retract that that okay. that statement um we don't know everything but we we know a lot so please please go ahead yeah that's that's why i was uh mentioning uh, tiny health reporting at the phylum level and why I would like to see it because that is the the most you know broad view of the bacterial biome and the first thing I look at when um, when I look at, at stool test results you know are you familiar with the formicides to bacteroidetes ratio yeah, somewhat yeah you know you have on the one side gram positive bacteria and which are mainly the butyrate producing uh, Clostridia within the Formicides phylum, uh, which, by the way, you know, the, these Clostridia are also known to be responsible for the release of gut-derived serotonin, um, but also they're the main butyrate producers. And you, if you look under the hood a little bit, you'll see that even within the Clostridium uh, clusters, uh, as they're called, there are what I would say non-optimal species. So you can't just look at the phylum level, but when you look at the phylum level, you can see whether or not Formicides is dominant compared to Bactroidetes, which is the other major phyla, and that is uh, gram-negative bacteria comprised mainly of Bactroides and Prevotella. They're, they're also crucial, both of them, especially for brain health um, and, and immune regulation. But, you know, some of which um, with Prevotella, for instance, it's, it's found to reduce um, brain inflammation by way of what's called Th17. These Th17 cells are, that's, that's a crucial part of what I call our microbiome vaccine safety project. We can talk about in a bit, um, Th17 um, and how that can be inflammatory leading to injury. But the the issue is that at the phylum level, we can see whether or not there's imbalance. In my view, we need Formicides dominance. 
And that was shown even recently by a study about vesicles, that's parts of the cell wall of bacteria that were found in the womb, in utero. You know, th this, this is a major field of, of controversy these days, whether or not in, in utero colonization even exists. Uh, there's plenty of evidence that it does, and I would fault the scientists saying that it doesn't um, exist, you know, or if it does, it's inconsequential. I think they're doing a major disservice um, to humanity, and I've been going up against them pretty actively, putting my activist hat on on uh, on Twitter these days. You know, there was a group of 40, 46 scientists recently that came out and said, basically, the womb is sterile. These are very smart, very smart people um, and microbiome scientists. Um, so the thinking there is if, if they say it is sterile, uh, then they can say that whatever you give a newborn is immaterial. It, it really can't harm the microbiome. Is that yeah, the yes, and, yes. And they're also condoning vaccination within eight hours of birth, at least in this country. That's what we do uh, with the Hep B vaccine. That's probably the first one that should be changed on the CDC's literally barbaric protocol of, I think it's about 72 vaccines now, maybe more now since they've added COVID-19 vaccines to the infant schedule, six-month-old infants. Um, but my point is that, you know, getting back to this phylum-level analysis, even this new research about vesicles found in the placenta, um, you know, also entering the fetus, educating the, the fetal immune system, you know, the, these maternal vesicles, which are parts of bacteria, um, even that research showed that Firmicutes were dominant. Um, that, that's pretty amazing. But they also showed that proteobacteria were crucial. And, you know, this is something that I wasn't surprised to see because you know, we're seeing proteobacteria as one of the first colonizers. Um, so, you know, we're specifically, we're talking about E. coli. E. coli has a really bad reputation, um, but not rightfully so. And in fact, we need to warn people, I think, about abuse of phage therapy for that reason. All the phage products on the market are targeting E. coli. We don't want to wipe out E. coli. We don't want to bioengineer E. coli either. I mean, there are some scientists that are so impudent that they believe that they can bioengineer E. coli to resist, you know, make, making E. coli immune to bacteriophage. Uh, that that's really unethical, in my view. I mean, the whole the whole field of field of synthetic biology needs to be called into question. Bioengineered probiotics is not something I'm a fan of. Um, I'm certainly not a fan of gain of function research. Um, you know, that that's what likely created the pandemic, um, by, by most accounts and right. what, what people don't understand, Rich, I just want to mention this, mm -hmm. um, that the whole purpose of gain of function research is to design the MRNA. So it's, you know, when you look at it more closely, it's quite an unethical racket where the end game is to create an arsenal of mRNA shots. That, that's what they want to do. Um, and, you know, anyway, 
Yeah, we, no, we, I appreciate the the Formicides bacteroidetes uh, discussion there. Uh, the I've helped uh, people test eight or nine family friends, and and as you mentioned earlier, uh, one of the things that uh, really the only the main thing that I would suggest to them is taking uh, HMO, human milk oligosaccharide, and pretty much every single time there was a very large increase in in Formicides. And because mm -hmm. of that, partly because of that, I, I had sort of a bias toward Formicides. And because of, mm. you mentioned the, the gram negative and the lipopolysaccharide, uh, generally highly inflammatory. But I also remember a, a paper that, uh, that opened my eyes to, to, to show me that not all LPS is bad. Some of it actually is anti-inflammatory. So that, that uh, I think, accords with your discussion on E. coli. Exactly. It's all about balance. You know, I love your focus on human milk oligosaccharides, HMOs. Um, did you know that HMOs are also found in, in the womb? Um, I, I know they're in various places. I'm not sure if I, I saw that. Tell oh, us yeah. Uh, you know, the fetus is exposed to a HMOs in the womb. Cool. Which is another clue that, you know, I mean, what are those, those HMOs doing in the womb? I mean, it's a clue that there are bacteria present, which which science has shown multiple times. Um, but the the people that are criticizing that are claiming that that is the result of contamination in, in the experiments. Oh, they're, okay. You know, and and they're also disregarding the function of E. coli. There's one group that even removed E. coli in their research about the placental. Um, microbiome um, and whether or not that exists. And, you know, they they attributed high levels of E. coli to contamination and removed that from the data set. You know, I, I've called them out on Twitter and I'm met with silence. Um, so also lactobacilli are 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 not given the, the due that, that they deserve in general. I think there are some, you know, there's some stool test reporting we're talking about now in the group that where the range I think is too low for lactobacillus. Lactobacillus has so much function um, to control the immune response um, in terms of being antifungal, um, but also raising oxytocin in the brain. Oxytocin receptors are are increased due to lactobacillus. I mean, we we really need to, you know, call lactobacilli basically, you know, the the guardians of humanity, especially when you see that up to 95% of the human vaginal microbiome in, in at least bacterial biome is lactobacillus. I did not know that. Yeah. You know, in, in my personal testing, I cannot seem to raise lactobacillus or acromantia, especially acromantia. So, so I sort of ignore it. So I, I appreciate this perspective. Well, maybe the lactobacilli are present where they need to be up to, up to about 6% in the small intestine. That's where they're able to lower pH, and lowered pH helps with butyrate synthesis. Um, there, but it's also crowding out pathogens. You know, they're they're really the guardians of our small intestine, and they can be extremely high in rodents, where which you have to take into account when you're looking at the research involving rodents like mice, where it's like sixty percent lactobacilli in the small intestine. Recently, I had the thought that uh, the field of, of 
coprophagy um, needs a you know an update. Where what is that field? Coprophagy. That's basically consuming feces, whether it's your own or the feces of others that animals practice. Um, especially gotcha. rodents are known to do sure. this. Well, they're forced to do this to balance their their naturally high levels of lactobacilli, uh, is what I is my current hypothesis. Otherwise, lactobacilli can consume all the nutrients like biotin, and you end up uh, with alopecia, according to the research. So, so this is an animal way of doing FMT, sort of. Exactly. Okay. And, and including autologous FMT, where you consume your own feces. Mm-hmm. You know, we should all probably be banking our own feces uh, for li- for use at a later date. You know, freezing it—that's a—that's an up and coming field. I haven't done it yet. Uh, I've resigned myself to FMT at some point using my, you know, breastfed baby poop is my hypothesis as maybe the best untapped medicine on earth. You know, it, it's so fun to nerd out with these sort of discussions. Um, I first got into gut health realm about ten years ago. It sort of sat dormant. Um, I did so much research and let it go. But the first thing I discovered was FMT. And, and I thought, what? Are you kidding me? Uh, one one dose, you know, transforms people. Uh, and so, I, so I'm telling like my friends about FMT and they're like, dude, that's just gross. Yeah. Stop talking about it. Uh, yeah. But we, we can nerd out here. Well, I like to call it connecting with the web of life for a change because, you know, we've been you know, on this earth basically with a sterile construct of health. I mean, the, this is not just a, a personal issue. It's also a planetary issue. Um, in 2018, I wrote a book for children, it's, but it's kind of an adult book in disguises about bacteria in the clouds known as rainmaking bacteria. And whether or not it rains or snows depends on this atmospheric microbiome. Cool. So cl- climate change not change is not just a CO2 issue. Um, so I want for people to understand that that it's not just about vaccine ingredients. That's where I think the you know the right wing, as you would say, the anti-vaxxers have made a big mistake. They've taken you know this idea that vaccine ingredients are to blame without looking at the individuals um, and what predisposes an individual to an adverse reaction. And that, that would be microbial imbalance. And I think that's so helpful. And, th- and again, that's a title of your paper, right? First the gut, then the brain. And you talk about uh, research out there. There's lots of research, uh, you know, some good, some not good, no doubt, saying exactly what you said. The vaccine ingredients clearly have not caused autism. Some would, uh, many would disagree with that, of course. Uh, but your angle is is just so necessary. That's why I want to have you on here. First, the gut. Let's, as you said, forget mm-hmm. about the ingredients for now. Yeah. How does it impact the gut? And then we know there's this gut brain axis. So this is so vital, Keith. Well, you know, all the focus on ingredients, you know, like mercury, for instance. I think put us behind, you know, this way of thinking by at least a decade. You know, as much as I, you know, promote and respect Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's now running for president, um, and and I hope people will find a way to elect him. But you know, his focus on ingredients um, wasn't the right one in my view. You know, talking about mercury. You know, if you look at 
the gut microbiota ability to convert mercury to its toxic form, that's where the focus should be. You know, you have the sulfate reducing bacteria, the SRBs, um, they're known in the environment to convert mercury to its toxic form. What about focusing on that aspect? It's not, and, and we know that the MMR vaccine never con, contained mercury. So, you know, the anti-vaxxers basically failed, in my view. They don't like hearing this um, by focusing on ingredients rather than individual immune response to explain. And when people realize that they may be playing, you know, for lack of a better term, I don't like using the, cl the cliche Russian roulette, but that's in essence what people are, are doing when they decide to go with the CDC schedule um, without understanding the risk involved and what constitutes the risk. I mean, what know, if, what if, yeah, go ahead. It seems like we're so far, you talked about infants getting tested routinely, gut uh, stool test. It seems like we're light years from that. You know, the barriers in the medical, in, this isn't a, this isn't a generic, oh, medical establishment is is evil or wrong. Uh, they're just uneducated. There's such a tremendous barrier. And I, I saw, again, with these couple case studies I've had uh, a great interest in, uh, especially piqued my interest. It, it's It should be routine, but, you know, you, you a doctor orders them, they don't even know what to do with it. So it, it's such yeah. a barrier. It's frustrating. You Well, it is frustrating. And I find it appalling. You know, I... I try to be as lighthearted as possible about it, but there comes a time when you have to take your gloves off um, and call out what is a sterile construct of health. You know, back to the HMOs, which, you know, I consider you having expertise and I've, I've enjoyed watching your videos about HMOs. You know, the, the study that, you know, the most recent study was 2022 that found HMOs in the womb we're based on gestational age. You know, if we, we talk about gestational age, it's really interesting because preterm infants were not that long ago vaccinated as if they were full term. And my understanding is the, the nurses, you know, uh, you know, as soon as they had a preterm infant, you know, preterm birth that was then vaccinated as if it were full term, they, they would, uh, make sure there was a bed ready in the NICU that, that because they knew there would be an adverse event and the CDC silently changed their recommendations with respect to, you know, the, the birth weight, for instance, and whether or not you can vaccinate as full term, but gestational age is a really interesting thing. This is something kind of miraculous. I want to mention here. There, there was research, several years ago out of Wash U in St. Louis. That's where you know, the father of the microbiome, Jeffrey Gordon, uh, works. And I always, my, whenever I see Wash U uh, research published, it, it piques my interest because my, my mother was a Wash U alumni. But they did a, a study there about gestational age, and they found that the infant microbiome assembly was based on gestational age and certain things like antibiotics could slow it down, but not change the order. So they found that bacilli were first lactobacillus falls in that group. 
of of in of of colonization in the preterm infant. It was a preterm infant study, which to me is suggestive of what may be going on in the womb. And when you put when you put the in utero colonization research together with the preterm infant research, it, it makes sense because the second colonizer is proteobacteria. Okay, we're back to E. coli and the importance of E. coli. Um, e. coli might have really important gut-brain function. You know, there's so many different pathways, including tryptophan metabolism and how E. coli can can drive that. But can I interrupt you real quick on that? Yeah, no, just yeah. for some listeners, um, mentioned E. coli a couple of times. I think mm -hmm. people immediately associate E. coli. You get it. You're hospitalized. Some people die. So. So many different strains, you know, produce toxins, produce good things, et cetera. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry, interrupt uh, your train of thought. No, but. no, that's okay. I, you know, in fact, I was looking for the list because I'm almost forgetting the list here of um, the the order of events. I believe it's um, bifidobacteria next. Okay. After, after proteobacteria. And so lactobacilli, proteobacteria, bifido. Yeah, and then with with uh, the weaning of um, the child, when and the addition of solid food, that's when clostridia flourish and take over. So, what's the miraculous Excuse part me. of this? <clears throat> that there is any order at all, mm. you know, and, and um, it's it's just amazing that this was discovered, and and when you look at the preterm infants, they're, they're known to have high proteobacteria. This is probably what's predisposing them to an adverse vaccine reaction, especially if they're vaccinated as if full term. The proteobacteria might be causing an immune response leading to damage. They're naturally high in proteobacteria mm -hmm. as a, as a preterm infant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that order of events fascinates me and, um, is something I think that's little known and, and understood. Fascinating. Never heard that before. Or, or that HMOs are in the womb and that, that they vary by gestational age reminds me of the fact that in the amount of HMOs in breast milk changes with the age of the infant. So so it, it, it slowly decreases over time. So there's this natural, uh, I, I would say, I'm, I'm bringing some more God language here. That's that's my bias, but but that's fine. Uh, this supernatural, this the, the creator has uh, put this in, is what I'm saying. Um, that the child needs fewer and fewer HMOs and has built in to mom's uh, process there uh, to decrease those amounts. And of course, uh, for, for listeners that that may not know, HMOs don't benefit the baby directly whatsoever they they which is sort of what we're talking about with vaccines right the indirect connection they feed the good bacteria which helps baby so tremendous help in the baby but it's just indirect sort of like this vaccine discussion yeah you know i like that you brought up um the spiritual aspect here because i want to tell you a story um that has to do with a very interesting gut brain connection, one, one that I've focused on a lot in years past is amino acid balance, because amino acids are the precursors to, neuro, to neurotransmitters. Um, and it's 
it's pretty well known that the amino acid levels are regulated by gut microbes, um, at least well known in the literature. The microbes make and break amino acids. Well, I, yeah, I think you'll, you'll get a kick out of this, Rich. I know you have a background as a pastor. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to hear the story. Well, it's 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 a fun one. I haven't I don't think I've ever told anyone this story. So I was interested in origin of life uh, several years ago um, from a microbial angle. And I discovered what are called the Miller-Urey experiments, where they, they're taking what are considered primordial gases like ammonia and nitrogen and hydrogen. And this, this, these Miller-Urey ex experiments, which were, I think it was the 1950s, they, they might have won a Nobel Prize. I have to reinvestigate that. Um, they, they, were, they had built these giant you know, uh, pieces of, equi of equipment to demonstrate the amino acids being formed from these gases. And I contacted a scientist who, you know, is a, a modern day Miller-Urey proponent and does his own experiments, um, as well as his co-author of a paper. And I offered them uh, test kits to detect microbes in what's called the Miller-Urey mixture. The mixtures are, you know, are what comes out of these gigantic you know, this gigantic apparatus that they build. Um, and because I thought that maybe the microbes are, you know, the reason that these, um, that, that the amino acids were found in the mixture, um, they're utilizing these gases and creating, creating amino acids. And I was immediately, um, called a creationist and, wow. um, yeah, um, they they did not want to accept the test kits, um, <laughs> and furthermore, they were they threatened to contact their university administration um, and claiming that I was harassing them. <laughs> so, so, so any sort of god language or supernatural processes there was just verboten to them. Exactly, they had yeah. what I would call a sterile construct of health. Um, Sterile's yeah, I mean, because, you know, it's interesting, you know, later I, I was learning about origin of, of life experiments and how another scientist did a, um, an experiment taking dead matter, like components of, of, um, of a microbe. I think it was a, a protist, you know, prote a uh, protozoan and they they found that the parts reassembled and and then life was created from those parts and the scientist had no explanation to this for this the paper is probably close to a decade old and there's not one citation you know there's no there's no follow up yet um and i i had a you know a discussion with this scientist about you know what may have caused this and I had a suspicion it was about time travel. So this is up. This this is going to make me into a real conspiracy theorist. <laughs> but we, we've but opened that can. Warren, yes, so we, we may as well go for it, because it turns out that the scientists had the same thought. He thought that the that the 
parts reassembled based based on remembrance. When you break down the term to remember, they were almost remembering something that that happened in their future. That's the idea. That's that's the time travel. Um, you know, how could dead matter reassemble and and then life is created if they didn't somehow remember what you know what occurred? And there's a there's a religious term for this that I that I'm fond of called anamnesis um, that describes that remembrance. Um, oh, kind of, that's a, yeah, that the, the word is a Latin word, I think in there for remember or memory. Okay. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Like mononic, mononic advice. I would say that M N E that's a, that's a memory device. I think that's the genesis of the word there. Well, you know, um, correct me or help me with this. If you know this, I believe it's the Miller-Urey experiments. And again, they were, as you said, they were investigating origin of life. How can these gases in the universe form into building blocks of life, amino acids? And they succeeded. But what I remember about that experiment is, and I can't remember, it's right-handed, left-handed amino acids, right? Do I have this right? Yeah, DNL. Yeah. Yeah. So they were able to create whatever whatever is needed for life. It's right or left or DNL, which is it? Do you know? I can't remember. Yeah, whatever it was, they mm-hmm. were able to create amino acids, but none of those are actually used in living organisms. So, so that's okay. that's why the experiment was a failure, is what I I remember. Oh, interesting. I think the term is racemic, but I'm I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. The the racemic mixture. I've got to look back on it. It's been a long time. Um, what a fascinating thing. You know, you know the idea that tryptophan, you know is competing with other amino acids to cross the blood-brain barrier in order to be the precursor of serotonin. Um, this is really interesting because the serotonin, the, you know, the serotonergic system, I don't think is commonly thought to impact the glutamatergic system. Um, but there's plenty of reason to believe this in, in the science. Glutamatergic related to glutamate. Exactly. And okay. things like the glutamate receptors in the brain. So this is one way to track back, you know, to the gut, a brain injury. When we focus on things like the glutamatergic system being impacted by the serotonergic, which is regulated by gut microbes. Um, so this is something that there's a scientist. Uh, you re- Thank you for sending me the most recent Russell Baker paper that was that just came out a couple months ago, I think. Um, I was a fan of his in 2014 when I wrote that article, first the gut, then the brain. And that was part of a, part of a series uh, that was posted on uh, Green Med Info. And um, the, you know, the idea then was to try to explain how, you know, what the biological plausibility is for a microbial-induced vaccine injury. And this included SIDS, by the way, which is another really hot topic. It's the leading killer of children under the age of six months, I think the fact is. Mm. And autism is, you know, if you look at the at the autism rates these days, they're staggering. One, one of the most recent um, is in Ireland, one in 13 boys. And there's no explanation um, for it. How can one in 13 boys be on the spectrum in, in Ireland? That's that's something it that should be ha- unlikely. 
yeah. well, it seems it seems unlikely that no one is wondering if it's vaccines, you know, right, um, right, except except maybe the minority. Although with the pandemic, that whole ball of wax have been, has been opened up with skepticism regarding vaccination in general. Um, the the genetic vaccines have been found to be um, associated with injury and also lack of effectiveness. So people are, you know, are thinking, well, maybe we need to go back and look at the whole infant schedule too. Yeah, that's, I, I totally agree with that. You don't have to be an anti-vaxxer to, to hold to that opinion. You had in your article, what I'd call a hundred dollar, maybe a million dollar word. Uh, and I thought, Keith's just making up stuff. He's just combining things. The word is uh, immunoexcitotoxicity. But then, so I Googled it. I found this article, why immunoexcitotoxicity is the basis of most de neurodegenerative diseases and systemic immune activation. And that that title, I didn't have to read the article. Uh, my mind was blown. Um, and immunoexcitotoxicity is from back to what you're talking about before glutamate and serotonin. So can you can you fill fill in some details for us there, please? Yeah, that was the the Russell Blaylock um, paper, and he's been talking about this kind of what's called glutamate excitotoxicity for a long time. He's a neurosurgeon, um, and he might actually be guilty of a sterile construct of health. But I think he's after 20 years talking about this kind of brain injury, immunoexcitotoxicity he might be coming around to it because last year he put out a book about the liver. Maybe he'll finally get to, you know, to the gut um, and the gut brain axis. What I was trying to do with that ar original article that I wrote at the end of 2014 was, you know, build on his immunoexcitotoxicity, glutamate excitotoxicity theories. It's more than theory now, um, but, and, and track it back to the gut. So just in the last week and a half, there has been research published about the NMDA receptor being regulated by, gut, by the gut associated with brain inflammation and encephalitis. You know, it, if you want to try to explain what parents have witnessed in their children, this after vaccines where they shriek, you know, in a way that, you know, is blood curdling. They've never heard before. And they arch the, their the back. Ba the, the babies are shrieking. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And with an arched back, mm. um, that's known to be about brain inflammation. Mm. But, you know, glutamate excitotoxicity could explain that of gut origin. And what's, uh, the, what's the link? How do you get a, a glutamate toxicity from, from the gut? Or maybe multiple pathways. Well, yeah, multiple pathways. Though the one I was working on would be um, the uh, the imbalance of amino acids, but but there's also a focus here. I mentioned earlier TH17, um, which drives the cytokine uh, IL17. You may have heard about cytokine storm in the uh, you know during the pandemic. For sure, of course. Well, recently there there's also research out of Northwestern University showing that cytokine storm wasn't found, uh, which makes the you know related to COVID nineteen deaths, which makes the deaths a little bit suspicious. That's another that's another show, um, but you know another conspiracy. Um, 
that's gaining ground, by the way. It's okay. funny how these conspiracy theories become true. Um, but this has been a main focus of the microbiome vaccine safety project is TH17 because it was shown um, that LPS, the lipopolysaccharide from gram-negative bacteria that you mentioned, is a driver of inflammation by way of IL-17 increasing what's called you know, neutrophil activity. These are immune cells. So we're basically our own worst enemy, you know, based on our gut's response to, you know, to something like a vaccine. And, you know, where where neutrophils, you know, the the, the biomarker on some reports is calprotectin uh, for, for neutrophil activity. So I'm not an expert in this area. I mean, I'm, I'm still, I learn aloud basically. Uh, I love it. Yeah. So this is a focus is, is because when I started learning about TH17 over the years, I started noticing this is a trend in the research. Also paper after paper, the collection I have posted on Facebook is huge mm. with respect to damage um, and injury by way of TH17. Um, and how it's connected to so many different things, even arthritis. I mean, and the the rub here is that it's a double-edged sword because it's also protective. So everything again, it's about balance and how you can have too much of a good thing. That that relates to microbes as well as immunity and the immune response. Th seventeen does both. It 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 can lower pathogens, but it can also lead to an inflammatory response. As do all the interleukins, correct? I'm not sure how to answer that, but okay, um, yeah, could be, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah so, interesting. so that's another important thing that I wasn't thinking about in 2014. Um, TH17 response. So, is it the the as you say in the paper the uh, glutamate toxicity? reduces levels of serotonin and, and of course that's what's needed for for brain health so is it the reduction of serotonin that's the ultimate problem or is glutamate toxicity also has other issues besides reducing serotonin probably well the whole idea that reduced serotonin is the problem might not be true and okay. this this was fostered you know by the ssri industry you know and, you know, applied to depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something called serotonin syndrome where you have too much serotonin. That might be more the problem. That make you too happy? <laughs> uh, well, that would make, uh, that that could impact, you know, what are they called? The thalamocortical, you know, parts of the brain um, impacted by glutamate toxicity. You know, I, I need to brush up on a lot of these things, Rich, but um, sure. and, and learn more and, and get get a knowledge update. But, you know, it's not about low serotonin. It might be about high serotonin. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, again, balance and things mm-hmm. things we don't yet know, but hope to uh, one day for sure. Yeah, I saw. Incident- incidentally, I just want to mention that Please. the serotonin that's made in the gut is known to be about 95% of all the serotonin in the body. But I like to, you know, say this, that, that it does not cross the blood brain barrier. 
it can be converted to melatonin in the gut, which does cross the blood-brain barrier. That's a very powerful antioxidant. Uh, but the gut-derived serotonin doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. That, but other other serotonin does. Well, non-gut-derived non serotonin. It it can be um, produced in the brain and then go back into systemic circulation there. But that's you know when you look at the big picture view, that's only about five percent of all the serotonin produced in the body. So again, a different a different topic, perhaps. But that gut-derived serotonin is doing different things. Obviously, if it's not crossing the blood-brain barrier. Exactly. It's also gotcha. you know, high levels of gut-derived serotonin are associated with diarrhea, uh, low levels, constipation. Gotcha. Interesting. One thing we haven't talked about, and uh, we should, I should probably let you go here pretty soon. Uh, um, we might have to divide this into, into two parts, but that's okay. It's, it's been worth it. I saw an article that stated that vaccines, COVID vaccine specifically, um, directly harms bifidobacteria um which obviously is a problem do you have any any thoughts on that comments the you know the area i've been focusing on in, ter in terms of how the the mrna mrna genetic shots um can affect immunity they basically reprogram interferon response type 1 interferons and suppress that response allowing other pathogens foothold they can escape the antiviral pathway maybe that that kind of reprogramming of the immune system can also cause inflammation that reduces protective bacteria it's such and, a complex area for sure yeah. and, and again the the key there is protective bacteria right bifido are so uh anti-inflammatory especially in infants you know up to up to 80 percent of their gut it, it, it should be eventually bifidobacteria yeah that, that any harming of that is detrimental for sure right the work you're describing was done by dr sabine hazan who's been doing a really nice job branding bifidobacteria basically something that i was trying to do also early on um based on the science and she's taking it a step further further by doing her own research with her own um her own laboratory um, you know, there's a lot more that needs to be done. And hopefully she'll be one of the people to do it. So you have to settle this debate once and for all. You're claiming lactobacilli is the king, queen of all bacteria. Some people say it's bifido. Other people say it's F. prausnitzi. Which is it, Keith? Give us the definitive it's, answer. It's it's all <laughs> of them. It's all of them. I'm not claiming, uh, claiming absolutely one or the other. But, you know, recently I was floored to discover that uh, F. prausnitzii is able to be cross-fed the precursor of vitamin D by another bacteria that's colonized in the female um, gut by way of estrogen. Um, and and F. prausnitzii is able to use this precursor to make, guess what, vitamin D3, the active form. This might explain why, you know, one of the reasons that, that there's such a disparity in autism, for example, and also other health disparities based on sex. You know, women have this, this advantage of higher estrogen um, and therefore higher levels of active vitamin D3, which runs the show in terms of our immune response. 
And that's and that goes back to the small intestine as well. Vitamin D3 was shown to balance flora mainly in the first section of the small intestine. So are you saying uh, um, people on the autism spectrum generally have lower D3 levels? I don't know what the latest is on that. That's a really good question. Okay. I thought maybe you're going there. I, I came upon something that you said disparity among sex. I think there's disparity among autism rates among races as well, right? Yeah. Well, this is another issue to explain, uh, you know, racial health disparities, which which are numerous. There are so many. You know, there there is some research, more than one piece of research, showing that African-Americans have a naturally higher level of Bactroides. That's that's an LPS producer. And if they're, you know, missing, you know, if for one reason or, or, or another, like antibiotics or diet, uh, they may be prone then to greater health disparities based on this gram-negative overgrowth that they're more prone to when their protective bacteria like lactobacilli and bifidobacteria, acromantia, butyrate producers, those are the, the main protective bacteria, even though Bactroides are also highly protective. I mean, the, there are you know connections between these major phyla. The Bactroides are known to raise butyrate production in the Firmicutes by way of doing things like raising IgA. Um, so there's a lot of you know cross-platform multi-kingdom stuff going on in the gut. It's quite a factory. Are so you even saying Bactroides. You're right. saying it's all connected. Totally. And, it and things like things like B fragilis, you know, I know you talked about in your first podcast. Right. That that was shown more than once to be crucial for infant cognition. But antibiotics are known to obliterate Bactroides in C section re research. You know, so you know you can have too much of a good thing, but then again, you can also have not enough of a of a crucial thing. Like there's an entire group called the B. fragilis group. It's not just B. fragilis itself, but it's like nine different species of, of Bactroides. So, you know, when maybe when those are missing, especially B. fragilis, I mean, it, it was found in, in some earlier research that adding B. fragilis attenuated autism symptoms. So, at most likely at a small level, but but ha having some uh, potentially beneficial. Oh yeah, and late well later research confirmed that B fragilis was crucial for infant cognition. So you don't want to wipe it out, um, mm -hmm. but you don't want to have too much of it to either. Or it could be a a strain that's known to be toxigenic. It's called enterotoxigenic B fragilis ETBF that's associated with cancer. Um, which is another reason why we talked about tiny health, you know, they're a shotgun analysis. So they go down to uh, species, subspecies, uh, and even starting to get more into strain level. And I have some conversations with them uh, recently that they're changing their bioinformatics and they're going to be able to detect even more strain level, which only adds to to our knowledge, knowledge basis. Yeah, they're great people. There, I would love to find a way to work with, with Tiny Health. Um, I, you know, I don't think though that we can micromanage the microbiome. You know, literally. I mean, so, you know, it's focusing on one particular species and trying to eliminate that or even grow that 
one thing in a bubble is not the way to go about it. It's it's more the big picture view, which is why I like the phylum level analysis, which is why I like biome site. We're promoting the biome site testing quite a lot on in the group. It's 16 sRNA, which has its limits. It's only bacteria, but I think it has a lot of function and, and uh, usefulness. And we can see right away that people are not hallucinating when when they're trying to reconcile their symptoms with their gut test results. I mean, that's that's when I do a consult, by the way, helping people to understand their test results. One of the first things I like to say is you're not hallucinating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is not in your head like a doctor might have told you years ago. Uh, you know, IBS and, and anorexia were once said to be all in the head. That's not the case anymore. You know, we, we have proof that it's, that there's imbalance. So you're not only, uh, helping people in their health, but you're helping them with their, their mental health. I'm not, this is, this, this is not psychosomatic. Exactly. The whole Which idea is so, is so judgmental yeah. and, 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 and shaming. Exactly. It's, you know, gaslighting would be another term. I mean, there, right. it's, it's about lighting the path so that, you know, you see the light at the end of the tunnel and that gives us all hope. I mean, you know, my personal story is not just about my dog. I mean, when I was when I was 50 years old, while I was treating this dog, I think I was, you know, going, you know, after years of being an ice cream addict and probably ate enough sweetened breakfast cereal in my life to sink a Navy ship. I was with and, you. Um, yeah. So I was probably heading towards certain death. Luckily, I was inspired to change that, hmm. you know, doing things like low carb diets and not being afraid of probiotics. Um, you know, so many people would be afraid. I was on an antibiotic kick trying to cure that dog um, when I realized that that was not working. And I started developing what I call the ad life protocol, you know? So I say that a lot, ad life. Nice. Nice. Well, to bring this, uh, to wrap it up a little bit here, anything we may have missed or you want to expand upon before we finish? I think we covered just about all of it for, for now, Rich. Yeah. Well, this was uh, a, a lot of fun. Uh, mo- most likely, hopefully it won't be our, our last uh, conversation, but uh, I think anyone with uh, an open mind will ha- benefit from listening to this. So really appreciate the time. And, and of course, the, the decades that has gone into our conversation. So thank you. Well, Keith. Thank you too, Rich. And you know what? Come to think of it, there are two areas we didn't talk about. Sure. Um, mitochondria and microglial activation. Uh, these are two major areas that um, can be easily construed to be regulated by the gut, mitochondrial function and microglial activation, and how that is associated with vaccine injury. So is that all you want to say about it for now? Yeah, just for now, that's enough. I just want to just, yeah, just throwing those words out. Sure. Well, you know, you listen to any thing related to health or longevity right now and mitochondria comes up all the time. So, uh, I am certain that's, that's important. So yeah. Once again, Keith, uh, thank you so much and, uh, and take care, man. Rich, thanks for your great pioneering work out there and getting the word out. Yeah, it's fun. All right. Okay. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening to this episode of the resilient biome podcast. And I hope it has been beneficial to you. If you like our content, please hit the follow button on Spotify. See you next time.